Hey, Boris. What's up, Tim? I wonder what would have happened if the dinosaurs had nuclear weapons to use against the asteroid that wiped them out. Or if they couldn't figure out nuclear fission, at least they could have used a really big stick of dynamite. Tim, I think you're being super critical. That's fair. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works in nuclear security for a living. I'm in California this weekend on vacation. So my usual podcast host, Gabe, is stuck back in Washington, D.C., trying to figure out the difference between an asteroid, a comet, a meteor, a meteoroid, a meteorite, and a metroid. I'm fortunate, though, to be joined instead by our returning special guest, Boris. You may remember him from our episode on the hunt for Red October. Boris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be back. I heard that there were some rave reviews regarding my first appearance. I, I could not pass the chance to come back and provide my witty and caustic and all kinds of <laughs> awesome commentary. And the, these trio of movies that are beloved by audiences everywhere. <laughs> well, um, and uh, just to, to say again, uh, I neither study nuclear weapons nor work on nuclear security for a living. So um, your results may vary. Generally a smart person, though, uh, always on my bucket list was to do an escape room. You know, those places you go, you get locked in a room, you have to try to solve some puzzles to get out. I always wanted to do one of those with Boris. I got to do that this weekend. He's a smart guy, so listen to him even though he, you know, didn't get an, M an MA in, uh, in WMD. But we are hanging out in his apartment in San Francisco this weekend. We were in wine country. We were canoeing. We were hiking. But, of course, I had to be that guy. You know, that friend of yours who always ruins nice moments by forcing his friends to watch movies about nuclear weapons? Yeah, that was me. We are going to talk today about a trio of movies where the planet Earth is being threatened by an asteroid, and the only possible solution to save humanity, nuke it. We're going to talk about three movies. First, Meteor, a movie may, most people probably have not heard of. It's from 1979, a low-budget U.S.-Hong Kong joint production. Stars a bunch of people we do know. Again, Sean Connery returning. Uh, not only Boris is returning guest here, but also Sean Connery since from the, from the Hunt for Red October. Uh, Natalie Wood, Henry Fonda, and Martin Landau are also in this movie. Longtime podcast listeners here will remember Henry Fonda as someone who played the U.S. president both in this movie and in the 1963 movie Failsafe. So check out that episode that we did on that particular movie. Uh, this movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound. The sound wasn't too bad. At least the, you have to admit that. I, the, yeah, the sound. The, the sound was was quite good. Good for 1979. 1979, yeah. And then we're also going to cover two movies, a pair of them from 1998 that most people are probably familiar with or at least have seen or heard of. Armageddon, the Michael Bay classic about the asteroid that can only be destroyed by having some oil men drill into it and put a nuke inside. May I just add that it's not only Michael Bay, but Michael Bay and Jerry Brockheimer. Ah, so the, you the get team. twice the explosions in <laughs> half the time. Excellent. And Deep Impact, uh, directed by Mimi Letter, who also directed another movie we covered on the podcast, The Peacemaker. 
a very good movie with Nicole Kidman and George Clooney. So check that one out as well. The whole premise of these movies are that there is an asteroid incoming or comet or meteor. They change the name of what they actually are. Some incoming object, extraterrestrial from outer space of uh, natural, not not uh, not life form. Right, no uh, aliens into, there. Yeah, no aliens yep. uh, that we know of. It's, yeah, it's heading towards Earth, uh, and we need to do something about it. And the solution in all these movies is to use nuclear weapons in some manner, right? This is not a debate only for movies and these kind of uh, pop culture items. You know, the people have discussed this as a real-life possible scenario for decades. There was a 2006 NASA report uh, that recommended nuclear weapons and nuclear explosives. They're never really called nuclear weapons most of the time. They're usually a nuclear device of some kind, right? Like a nuclear test device isn't a weapon. A nuclear weapon is some sort of nuclear device that explodes plus the delivery mechanism. So if you have a, a nuclear missile with a nuclear warhead, yeah, you got a nuclear weapon. If you got a bomb that's dropped from an airplane and kind of floats down to the ground with a parachute, perhaps, that's a nuclear bomb. Just just semantics of people following along with what's going on in my head. Uh, but this 2006 NASA report recommended nuclear explosives as the optimal deflection mechanism to deflect the asteroid and push it to its side, try to get it off its path to hitting the Earth. Uh, we also learned in 2014 in a Government Accountability Office, GAO, report that the National Nuclear Security Administration, the NNSA, that controls and manages our nuclear force. This report that nuclear weapons components, specifically those containing highly enriched uranium, that those are being removed from a scheduled dismantlement, quote unquote, pending a senior level government evaluation of their use in planetary defense against earthbound asteroids. So clearly people have been talking about this and been thinking about this. And me personally, my first came across this, not in movies or film or anything, but in high school debate. I was one of those people that was the, you knew a high school debater, the ones that talk fast, and that was me and my, my debate partner, Jason. Uh, what Tim means is that he was not a Lincoln Douglas debater, but rather a policy right. debater. We like, we like our style of debate. Okay. But... Nerd joke over, please continue. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and we had a, an argument that we would run, which was if the topic was get rid of all nuclear weapons and a team that made that argument, we would say, sure, but what if we kept like five or six and kept them under international control and they were just going to be used for stopping asteroids? Sounds like a pretty reasonable conclusion. We ran this argument so much and won on it 95% of the time. And it got to the point where we were in a playoff, you know, out round situation. And there was a team. I won't say that school. Mind you, was this high school or was this school. college? This was high, high school. school. Okay. Uh, we made them flip over a table at the end of the round because they came up to us beforehand and said, are you going to run that stupid asteroid argument? We said, yes. They said, don't do it because we're ready for it. We know you guys run that. And we said, okay. We ran it. They lost both the round and their tempers. So this is uh, something that's always kind of been close to my heart. And now that I have a podcast where I talk about movies and nukes, there's no way I wasn't going to bring up the asteroid argument at some point. Tim the Dissad King. What can <laughs> I say? So let's get super critical here. Uh, spoiler warning for Meteor, Deep Impact, and Armageddon. We'll spend most of the time on Meteor because that's a movie that most people probably have not seen. It is available on YouTube. I don't know if it's necessarily a uh, you know legit copy. You can, you can buy that copy here and there, uh, but it's definitely fully available on YouTube, so I recommend checking it out. Also, it has um, a cast who, of... Uh... Uh, they are, whose actors and I guess actresses are also quite well known and do have some yeah. modicum of artistic talent. They're not too bad. So, the acting is not the problem. 
Well, uh, let's, let's, see, let's uh, save yeah. that for the end here. Uh, I will also say that Boris's wife made us uh, delicious Manhattans, and it's on theme because in all of these movies, Manhattan gets destroyed or attacked at least in some form by what else? Lion what, rocks. what else is new? I'm kind of um, uh, I am kind of sad that I think in none of those movies uh, does the Golden Gate Bridge mm-hmm. uh, here in San Francisco get um, mauled, mangled, or destroyed. Not I don't deep believe. Impact? I do not believe so, but let's get into it later. Okay. Let's check it out. All right. So, Meteor, 1979. The movie opens with a low-budget, like, stress, low-budget, Star Wars-like opening credits crawl through space. And then all of a sudden it becomes like a Twilight Zone narration about asteroids and space and how asteroids in space want to kill us. The asteroid belt. A vast junkyard of metal and rock orbiting the sun between Jupiter and Mars. Thousands of fragments, some as small as a fist, some as large as a city. And amongst these, Orpheus, 20 miles in diameter and undisturbed for countless generations. Until now. Orpheus, a big asteroid that is hit by a comet in the asteroid belt and decides, hey, I'm going to take out Earth now after being knocked out of the asteroid belt and it's being hurled towards our planet. The only people that can stop it is Sean Connery. His character's name, Dr. Paul Bradley. We meet him. He's trying to win the America's Cup, that uh, sailboat race. Uh, But the U.S. Coast Guard has orders from NASA. I guess they're taking orders from NASA now to take him in. So they put him in a helicopter. They bring him to Houston for this space emergency. The I think it's a NASA director, Kels Connery, uh, who used to be a NASA employee, that the Challenger 2, which is a space station, and it's unclear about what timeline this movie is supposed to be taking place. Yeah. The space station they have here is a little fancy. It looks like Skylab, but it has the ability to maneuver around in space and instead of just stick itself in orbit and circle around the Earth. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, it's told to take some pictures of Orpheus, and of course, while it's being taking these pictures, a, a comet hits it, and a f- big chunk of it like s- destroys Challenger 2, and also this five-mile-wide piece is heading towards Earth in seven days. Uh, ignoring the fact that an object traveling from the asteroid belt to Earth would probably take six months, but you know, one week, that lets you have a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure on our characters here. But then NASA says, Connery, you're the one that can solve this problem. We're going to send you to a meeting in D.C. where top men will discuss what to do about the asteroid. They keep mentioning this thing, right? They keep mentioning... Yeah, it's unclear what that thing is at first, right? Yeah, it's called Hercules. Yeah. So, so far we have Hercules and Orpheus. We're going to run through the whole gamut of of Greek mythology here. And we find out, uh, it's funny enough, when he gets sent to D.C., there's a little side thing. They send him on a commercial flight. So even though it's the most important thing in the world, they still make him fly coach, which I thought was pretty funny. Hey, come on. It was the 70s inflation time, so <laughs> government was strapped <laughs> So before Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably literally. Yeah. Uh, no, I guess a little bit after Star no, Wars, so, Star Wars. But before Star Wars, the, the – uh, Oh, Reagan's, that one. That one. The, the, the real one. The, the space defense yeah, initiative. Exactly, yeah. Got it. Uh, so Cos- Cosmonaut Connery. Uh, turns out was the creator of Hercules, which is a space station 
that he wanted to have, you know, float around in space and also have like 14 nuclear missiles. And they would be pointed out towards space to be a defense system against things that would hurt Earth. Well, NASA and the military decided that it was going to turn that system around, point it at Russia or, quote unquote, the Russians or China or whatever. It wasn't my decision to turn Hercules into... Hercules into what? What did they turn it into? Will you listen to me? Hercules was never designed to be a nuclear weapon with 14 warheads pointing right down on Russia. Not only Russia. Or China, what the hell else? Those rockets were supposed to point outwards, not in. So that's uh, why Connery quit NASA. He's very, very upset about this whole thing. Yeah, whole imagine thing. if they only changed the axis 180 degrees and all of a sudden Sean Connery is no longer with NASA. Yeah, that, that's, damn what, that's shame. what it took. Damn shame. Yep. Uh, so he, he and the NASA director, their big narrative arc in this story. Like this is the major story. Obviously the asteroid coming to hit the Earth is a pretty big deal. But mm -hmm. we're trying to convince both Washington, D.C., and the Russians, who we find out that they also have a system, not called Hercules, but called Peter the Great. That's pretty good. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe any any sort of thought why it would be called Peter the Great. It's called that in both the movie and, it turns out, a Marvel Comics did a edition in 1979-1980, like a special edition adaptation of the movie. I also have that, and I purchased it. There's still nukes and asteroids involved, but um, why would you say that it's called Peter the Great if you had to take a guess. Because that is probably one of only two or three names that screenwriters <laughs> would know from Russian history. Hey, that's as probably as good as reason as any, right? Um, so this, the big narrative thing is to convince both Washington and the Russians that we need to turn these systems around and hit the asteroid together, and that's the only way we're going to be able to knock out the, the asteroid from hitting the Earth. But it's also a political problem because this Hercules project is probably illegal. It's against international law. So the military is the people in the movie who's saying, let's not use the nukes to blow things up. Let's keep it a secret because they're really concerned about yeah. people finding out about this, right? Right. I mean, obviously, the U.S. was just coming off of Vietnam at that time. Military didn't want to ruffle any additional mm. feathers, and it's, it becomes a big deal. It makes sense. If you would, Boris, please allow me to have the space to take a quick detour about nukes in space. Uh, I want to talk about the Outer Space Treaty because it entered into force in 1967. It prohibits countries from installing or placing nuclear weapons or any other weapons of mass destruction in the Earth's orbit, on the moon, or any celestial body. Things like asteroids, that kind of stuff. No lunar missile bases, no orbiting space platforms, those kind of things, uh, so, including so, yes. testing as well. Yeah. So don't put nukes uh, or any other weapons in uh, uh, in space. Right. Uh, do we know uh, who actually signed this treaty? Was it signed by, like, what, was it uh, initiated by the U.S. and USSR? Or they were both there signed other... it, yeah. They both okay. have made agreements to do this. This is, uh, this is still around today. It's mm -hmm. still definitely something that prevents people from doing this system. But there were challenges to the Outer Space Treaty. In 1981, the U.S. Department of Defense completed a survey comparing 30 different basing modes for U.S. ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the ones that go, you know, usually into space. They go pretty far. Mm -hmm. But they were trying to figure out where to store these things, where to put them so they can deliver their nuclear arsenal and payload in the best way that keeps them safe from being hit first by the other side, available for a range of missions, and not also break the bank, you know, be too costly. So they looked at a bunch of different things, the more conventional approaches, which we ended up doing, which is 
underground missile silos. They also recommended using submarines more often. Uh, but the other ideas were putting them on the ocean floor, attaching them to a buoy or a ship, and also putting them into space. And the section of this report on orbital-based ICBMs describes a, quote, new booster for the missiles in the Minuteman silos. On the warning of an incoming attack, what these missiles would do is they would be launched into orbit, await further orders. Command and control systems could either tell them to send the missiles to their targets or abort, and the missiles would just splash down somewhere in the ocean. So these, this idea was you put them up in a crisis, they'd be up there, the Russians would know they were up there, and the idea was, hey, don't start anything because we'll get to fire or basically drop our missiles to, to you and you won't be able to get to them before the times they hit them. So don't try anything. Don't try to knock out our missile silos or our bombers on the ground. You just won't get to us before we can have a chance to respond. So it would literally be putting sort of a hair trigger system in there right. saying, hey, you can't reach these these. Uh, missiles in orbit, but they can drop down at any point in time. So don't exactly. do anything stupid. Don't even try. So this document brainstorms some pros and cons to this idea. Pros, according to this, <laughs> low cost. Uh, interesting. Uh, the cons list, however, is a little bit longer. Uh, vulnerable to attack in orbit. Requires warning to you know actually launch them up into the into space. Uh, the accuracy at the time was pretty insufficient for hardened targets. You know missile silos. Uh, command and control installations that were hardened underground. There were a lot of chances for false alarms because if you launched your system up into space and it turns out it wasn't actually an incoming attack or a crisis, you now lost a big chunk of your nuclear arsenal. The little footnote here, they violate the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, Robert, eh, Mac But that's <laughs> just a footnote. Uh, Robert McNamara, when he took over the Pentagon in 1961, ended most of these programs. Canceled because of the insane cost and... Also, other things we were able to do this mission pretty well, which was submarines, which is what we were relying on. So that would be the third leg of, of the force. triad. Instead of launching missiles into uh, into orbit and uh, yeah. putting the and saying, "Hey, guys, this is the the third leg," uh, we just basically put them on on subs. Exactly, and that was the the more okay. stealth mission, the survivability function of the idea that you can't really know where all of your submarines are, mm -hmm. so you'll never know if you get them all. You put a bunch of missiles with multiple warheads on right. each missile. That's how they got to this mission, and yeah. that was relatively cheaper than having a space right. platform. But uh, what was the military utility of putting nuclear weapons in space, right? According to a report by the RAND Corporation on space-based weapons, there are a number of reasons the advocates gave for basing nuclear weapons in space. And these were the kind of the, the arguments that uh, military uh, people in the movie Meteor, this guy, uh, I think his name is Major General Alden, played by Martin Landau, uh, he's some of the arguments that they would make. One makes them less vulnerable to attack from ground-based systems, mostly because they're further away and they would require a rocket to hit it. Uh, two, once the weapons are launched towards Earth, they would have a much shorter window and visibility on the enemy's Earth-based warning systems. And three, the warheads would reach their intended targets from any direction, making them inv invisible to early warning systems that were pointed where they thought they were going to be coming from, whether they're bombers or missiles. You point them you know, south would be one of the problems for the United States. All of our early warning system is pointed up, you know, yep. kind of where the Russians would be coming from in terms of their missiles. So in addition, it also may make strategic sense that it adds an extra leg. You know, you talked earlier about the triad. Well, instead of just missiles, subs, and bombers, it might make them more like a quadrad. Or if you count the Army's tactical nuclear weapons, you know, like the, the Davy Crockett, the nuclear artillery, all of those things, it's like a super critical quintuple, quintuple? 
you'd have like five different legs instead of just the three. And some people made this moral argument. The idea is that in war fighting, you tend to target the other side's military installations. Mm -hmm. But if you put military installations, which tend to be pretty close actually to civilian populations, means that if you only if you do a counterforce targeting, which is I'm only going to hit the other side's military, you're going to end up with a lot of civilian casualties. But if all of our war fighting is done in space, because that's where all of our nuclear weapons are, there's a less likely a chance that civilians would get hurt. That's the ar- the argument. Probably not sure, true because it would never. It would only never only be that. It would be that plus something else, right? They're, we're talking about multiple legs of the triad, not just uh, submarines and space platforms. It's going to be probably be all of them. Yeah, I don't think they really thought that one through completely. No, the moral but... argument's not super strong. But the main argument that people made is, look, anytime you have the ability to take a weapon and put it somewhere where the war fighting can happen, it's going to happen. Whether it's underwater, whether it's on land, whether it's you know in the air, if you can militarize it, it's inevitably going to happen. So let's get to it first. Let's be the first ones up there. The human nature argument. Right. Different we're kind gonna, of morality. Yeah. We're going to fight it, uh, or we're, we're going to do it anyway, so since we can do it first, why not? Right, right. What about the other side of this debate? Uh, you know, there's the idea that it violates international law. Sure, that's certainly a concern for people. Uh, but the military usefulness and strategy arguments, you want to why not put them in space? A couple things here. One, turns out that hitting a target on Earth from space is really hard. You have to know, the make sure that the delivery platform is in the right orbit. There's a very narrow window when it's available to, to actually hit its target, unless you then put up a lot of fuel for the rockets to fly around. But then you lose that argument that it's quick right. and you won't be on radar for too long. There's only probably a, w- a narrow window of like hours or certain days that this is best used. So you lose that ability, that flexibility. Two... If the delivery system malfunctions or explodes, you're going to have to have some unintended damage to other space platforms, or you have radioactive debris flying around, landing on Earth. That's not so good. If something breaks, you have to send somebody up to fix it. Instead of it being on a submarine where there's crew that can work on that when it's being uh, dry docked, uh, if you have a missile silo, you can have somebody out there with a wrench you know, fixing things. If it's in space and the communication system breaks down, what are you going to do? It's going to be pretty difficult, and... Things like solar flares and other kind of disruptions can break it. Uh, also, it's really difficult to harden the platform against an attack from an anti-satellite weapon. The Naval War College Review argued that the an anti-satellite weapon fired from Earth could disperse something as simple as sand, pebbles, from low <laughs> Earth orbit. And it's like the movie Gravity, uh, which I know you don't like, but I really, really like. Uh, you put those little objects in orbit... And when they get to the space platform, they will tear right through it because of the speed that everything's going to be traveling. Simply doing that is enough. And you can try to harden your space platform against those things. But that means armor. That means maneuverability if you want to move it around. And that just makes it heavier and and more costly and all that kind of stuff. So the idea is, you know, once submarines started to serve the strategic role of orbiting platforms, what they thought they would be doing, you know, invulnerable, invisible all that kind of stuff, they fell out of favor. Yeah, and if I may, if I may add one more point, I mean, uh, you do have to actually launch all of this into right. space in the first place. 
So um, it's we, expensive. Yeah, it is expensive, and then also it is also not a hundred percent successful sometimes. Yeah. So um, do you want to lose uh, one of your nuclear weapons, or it explodes? Do you want and... to irradiate and your entire yeah. nuclear launch or your entire launch complex? Um, would, in... f- would Florida or Houston like yeah. that? Um, I don't. Do... We do not know. <laughs> But uh, but once again, it's uh, the, uh, Tim. Just like you pointed out, it is costly and it's uh, very far from a hundred percent success rate or hundred percent effective. Even even both getting the platform out into space, right. maintaining the platform, and making sure that the platform uh, can actually do what uh, its designers say it can. Well, these are all great academic points that we're making here, but clearly one side won in the movie Meteor, the military. They said, we're going to put this platform up there. Thank you, Sean Connery, for the idea. And Hercules will be used against the Russians or the Chinese or whatever. Uh, Well, the Russians find out about Orpheus, the asteroid. There's this interesting little scene where they're walking kind of towards the camera somewhere where there's a lot of snow. And they're like, you know, Orpheus looks pretty bad, but we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about our systems because the Americans will never... They'll never talk about their stuff. So I think we're just going to be kind of stubborn about this. When you see that same stubbornness, too, uh, in Washington, as the different characters debate about whether or not NASA can use this to you know, prevent an extinction-level event. It's kind of funny that the arguments that people make, like, well, there's an asteroid incoming that will destroy everybody, but really we want to make sure that we, we save face here. We don't work with the Russians. We, don't, we can't trust them. We can trust the asteroid more than we can trust... The, the Russians, it kind of seems like here? Um, I think so. I mean, the, the, the asteroid you can negotiate with, but the Soviets? <laughs> You're in charge of Project Hercules, and if the result of this meeting is to make use... There's nothing else we can use. The only thing we've got out there is Hercules. Damn it. Hercules is not up there either, as far as anybody but we are concerned. And it's got to stay that way. We have never admitted to Hercules. And if we admit to it we now... We have to. You can't keep the whole world in the dark about what's going on. Once they know that a five-mile hunk of rock is going to hit somewhere at 30,000 miles per hour, the people will want to know what the hell we intend to do about it. You're going to tell the entire world we have nuclear rockets orbiting out there in direct contradiction to every international agreement we've ever made? That's an invitation to, to being called liars and warmongers by international murderers we don't. What do you want to do? You want to go out there and meet him with BB guns and slingshots? Please, gentlemen. Uh, I think it's kind of funny, though, that also that usually it's the military who are the heroes in these kind of movies. Uh, here, it's the whether or not to let the good guys, the NASA engineers and scientists, to use nuclear weapons to save the world versus the military who won't want to admit that they violated international law. Yeah, Very interesting I mean, little twist uh, I'd say that this is definitely a post-Vietnam so sort mm. of movie. I'd, I'd say that um, in the times that it was released, uh, the military did not have the greatest reputation. For uh, the U.S. military did not have a right. great reputation for uh, honesty and forthrightness, so That's that a really could have played. Point, yeah, Henry Fonda, that actor, he's got a lot of a lot of credibility with the American people, uh, not only because he saved the world. I guess he did. Just spoiler alert for failsafe, he did authorize the uh, own U.S. nuclear weapon attack against New York City to prevent the Russians because we accidentally blew up Moscow to prevent them from retaliating against us. Either way, he's got a lot of credibility in the people's eyes on handling these things. All right, so we learn even if the U.S. were to use Hercules and its 14 nuclear missiles against Orpheus, it's not enough. We learn that each warhead on the Hercules system 
is 100 megatons. That's huge. Holy cow, right? Of the 14 warheads over across them, that's 1,400 megatons of payload, uh, which is today the combined megatonnage of the entire U.S. nuclear stockpile. It's quite a bit. Uh, warhead yields tend to range in our current arsenal here between 0.3 kilotons, which is 1,000 tons instead of a megaton, which is, you know, um, quite a bit. Yep. 1,000 kilotons. So it ranges between 0.3 kilotons to 1.2 megatons per warhead. Uh, the largest ever nuclear test, the Tsar Bomba, done by the, the Soviet Union, was 50 megatons. Theoretically, it could have been 100 megatons if they just would have, you know, given it more fuel, a little bit more of a booster. But this was not a deliverable weapon. This thing was huge. It was really heavy. It barely could ever fit on an airplane if it got any larger. Like, it's not something you can really deliver quickly and stealthily. So to imagine... So what you're saying is that uh, something of that size would just not be able to be launched into orbit, period. You know, in this world of this movie, we have a Skylab-like system, this Challenger 2, that can maneuver around right. and do all these things. I guess they solved the weight ratio sure, problems yeah, in, I mean, in this Gravity decade. is only a social construct anyways. <laughs> well, you know, here's what we need to be constructive about this. We need... More megatonnage. I keep saying more megatonnage. And who more else, is better. Well, who else could possibly offer such uh, megatonnage for us? Uh, let me see, Tim. Uh, would it be the Soviets, perchance? The USSR. Yes. Oh. So what you're telling me is that even if we admit to Hercules, and I give you my permission to realign the rockets, we still need more firepower, more nuclear megatonnage, more rockets... That's right, Mr. President. Well, Mr. Secretary, do we have more rockets? Not in space, sir. And what the hell are we supposed to do? Conjure them out of air? Mr. President, will you confirm what I'm about to say? The Russians had their own equivalent of Hercules out in space. True or not true? True. Mr. President, we need the combined power of theirs and ours. Before, though, we can get our buddy cop movie between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, we have to convince the Russians that this is a good idea. Uh, so Henry Fonda, President Henry Fonda, goes on TV, reveals the existence of Hercules, claims it was always meant to be an asteroid killer, never meant to be used against the Russians or the Chinese, and then they called on the Russians to reciprocate. So then we, we find out that uh, the Russians have agreed to at least send over an envoy, someone that Connery either knows or has heard of, maybe worked with before in the past, uh, Dr. Duvov? Durov, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, uh, the um, the obviously doctor. the yeah the um, uh, neither Comrade Connery nor the others have a really good grasp of the Russian language. So yeah, how, how is the Russian in this movie? Um, I think the uh, the doctor, the good doctor himself, as well as the astrophysicist, who I think in real life is did have Russian heritage. Uh, are pretty good. Well, that's Natalie Wood. Indeed. I, I, yeah, so the, I think the, she was born of uh, Russian immigrant parents on the West Coast at some okay. point. Um, Her, that's uh, Tatiana... Donskaya? Yep. Uh, they come over, and they get to see the big room that Project Hercules, the command center. And they get to see there. The Major General Alden Al is not so happy about this whole situation. Yep. Um, and what happens first, as soon as... Uh, Tatiana enters the room. Sean Connery immediately begins hitting on her, uh, which d could maybe potentially cause an international incident. Uh, but that's kind of where we are yeah. right now. I think we could all start by uh, trusting each other. 
Otherwise, what's the point? And if it's a matter of choosing, I'll take the pretty one. <laughs> well, the pretty one is uh, Tatiana Nikolaevna Donskaya. Did I say it right? Very good. Astrophysicist and Dr. Dubov's English voice. How do you do? How do you do? The U.S. will not turn around its weapons to face the asteroid unless the Russians admit they have a system, tell us all about the system, and then do it themselves, turning those missiles back into space. Uh, the Russians admit to... I like the way this scene goes. It's like, if I were to build this platform, I would say that it would probably have 15 nuclear weapons, one more than the real U.S., and it would also have 100 megaton warheads for a grand total for them of 2,900 megatons uh, <laughs> overall between all the different systems. So, you know, this is this is a quite a quite a movie here. Uh, but we need to because this is a disaster movie, we need to start seeing things blow up. And I'll say this movie, even though it's very silly, there is this one scene that I really, really like. It's a scene, it's a man in Siberia. No, it's a Siberian native, and so, that's it. He's coming home late at night, and he sees a red light in the sky. Kind of looks at it and goes, oh, that's interesting. Could be anything. Mm -hmm. And he goes inside uh, his, his home, he starts to eat dinner, but then all of a sudden he looks outside and it's daylight. That's kind of a scary little moment. So they go outside and they see something coming in really fast. The asteroid hits somewhere nearby, but I guess the family is okay. These smaller pieces of the mm -hmm. asteroid come in first. I guess that's how this in the movie, the science of this would work, because it comes like days ahead of the other one. These small pieces come by and they hit. The family's okay, but it was kind of a spooky scene. I really like that scene quite a bit. But then the movie immediately ruins it by having Connery hit on Tatiana again immediately after she says that her husband died in a space incident, space launch or something. And he's like, oh, hmm, okay, well, then you're Great. you're single. Great. You're Perfect. available, yes. Then we all of a sudden see this like Benny Hill comedy scene where the Russian doctor yells and kind of runs around and asks for a telephone so we can call up the government and convinces them to use the uh, Peter the Great missile system. So kind of this quick little back and forth thing. Uh, International diplomacy. It works. No, para, para excellence. It works out pretty well. The Hercules gets turned around in space to kind of face away from Earth and towards the asteroid. And this is kind of the, where the movie breaks down a little bit for me. This might just be a 1970s thing. But as the missiles are slowly turning, you get this like very like triumphant music. Like there's some sort of orchestra, full orchestra playing. Sure. I yeah. love that. Um, and then yeah. we get a couple of different disaster scenes here, like random scenes. Right, Boris? Uh, so the, I've got, uh, let's see, I've got five uh, hits. So mm -hmm. one is in Siberia, uh, the one that you talked about. There is a near miss in Pisa, which I guess, or not in Pisa, but in Italy, I guess it mm -hmm. was in Pisa, uh, where um, the uh, piece of meteor disintegrated before it had an impact. So <laughs> yeah, so the Linian Tower is spared. Good. The Linian didn't knock it the other yep, way. Yep, exactly, even it out. Uh, and uh, then there was a hit in the Alps, which uh, I guess they have to have a ski scene <laughs> in there. So I think uh, I, I think I read somewhere that that's like. They, they were running out of money, so they used stock footage of another avalanche movie, and it's just okay. All right, well, there's an avalanche. All right, that's something that's that's, that's probably not good. Yeah, that's what killed the dinosaurs. I think yeah. were avalanches. Yeah, the avalanches. Yeah, all kinds of things. And then the um, hit in Hong Kong, which I guess caused the uh, in the movie caused the like tsunami tidal wave. Tide or yeah. tidal wave or something like that. 
and then finally the hit on Manhattan. Yep. Uh, so the U.S. and the Russian rockets are, you know, they're about to launch towards the asteroid, and then a piece hits of the asteroid hits Manhattan and like knocks out the command post, but not not before the missiles are kind of left their platform. Yep. We see the the missiles, like dozens of the missiles. So what is it? Twenty nine of the missiles. Yep. Uh, get launched into space. Yep. For some reason, they keep burning fuel the whole way, which is absolutely not how yeah. these work, yeah. but. You know, space, you push but it. But it, it looks nicer, A, and yeah. uh, and B, I'm pretty sure they reused a, little, a bunch of that footage so to, expand, to extend the movie. They keep so, showing you know, the same so, shot yeah. over and over again, yeah. yeah. And then the missiles hit the asteroid. They hit them in, in three increasingly larger waves, like two missiles, then eight missiles, then all of the missiles all at once. Uh, we see these, like, flashes of red and white nose cones that jump back and forth. And then, which I found hilarious, a, like, two-minute-long sequence of the bomb exploding and the whole screen slowly turning red. Uh, and it goes on for such a long time. And then finally, when it dissipates, the asteroid is gone. So it, like, Completely vaporized. gone. Yeah, exactly. Completely gone. We're interrupting our coverage of the New York disaster to bring you an official announcement just received from Houston. Three minutes ago, at 10.38, the combined rockets of the United States and the USSR struck the meteor, which has for five days been coming towards us. The danger is past. Then we have like an anticlimactic scene where everybody, because of Manhattan being hit, uh, they have to escape through the sewer tunnels, and then there's flooding from the river. In the subway, yeah. That's... And it's super gross. It kind of looks like the Willy Wonka chocolate yeah. river, and everyone's just like splashing around in there. But you're like, why do we care about this? An asteroid just got destroyed by 2,900 megatons, but we need to make sure that our heroes can swim, can wade through mud. Yeah, so the just uh, 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 in terms of background, the uh, substance that we that was used in the scene, mm. bentonite, uh, I believe they had to film that scene for two days straight. Uh, and uh, I think a few of the actors even got sick from ingesting too, uh, a bit too much of it, and it cost a full, I believe, either a quarter or a third of the entire movie budget. It's like a two-minute scene. It's not necessary. I'm at this point already checking my Twitter or something, right. asking the wife what she wants to do tomorrow. Like, I'm, the movie's over at this point. But the maker of the Bentonite, I'm sure, was very happy. <laughs> very they, happy uh, yep, they keep probably uh, had a very nice uh, set of Christmas presents. <laughs> Meteorites so are good for Bentonites. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so at the end of the movie, we see the U.S. And, and the USSR. They come together on the tarmac before the Russians now fly back to Moscow or somewhere. Uh, and they, they celebrate together. Connery gives the doctor a signed baseball bat courtesy of the L.A. Dodgers, which I thought was kind of funny. One, I'm fine being a Dodgers fan. Go blue. Uh, we're in the playoffs Boo. now. It's great. Boo. Sorry, your Minnesota Twins. Uh, are they? They're still a team, right? Sorry, apologize. Uh, as of now, yes. But who's not a team anymore? Are since they're in New York City in the movie, the Mets or the Yankees may not exist anymore. Why not have a baseball bat come from them? You know, they have to fly in the Dodger bat essentially. Well, anyway, they were at spring training or something. You never. I mean, you never know. Never know. Like, yeah. But anyways, Connor Connery's got this baseball bat, and he gives it to the doctor. And then, right before Tatiana gets on the airplane, he, like, pulls her in, gives her a kiss, kind of forces a kiss on her. It's unclear. She does say that she hopes that one day to return, which is, like, a beautiful moment in the sense that 
maybe that's what started to end the Cold War. That's what led to, you know, Perestroika and, and opening up and all that kind of good stuff. It's a, it's just like Rocky Four, the end of Rocky Four when they Rocky beats Ivan Drago t- to end the Cold War. Meteor and Rocky Four. I don't think I would have ever imagined uh, both uh, movie names being uttered in the same sentence, but. Way to go, Tim. Well, isn't it? I think at one point, Iron Drago says it about his punches that they are like iron, uh, which is what most of what a meteor is. Anyways, in the end of the movie, we have this like scene at the very end. There's like word on screen that says that it's based off of this Project Icarus. So now, again, we got some more uh, Greek mythology here. Uh, Project Icarus, they just say in the movie, it's based on Project Icarus, an MIT study. So the movie, if you had any problems with it, take it up with them. Right, those those kids over there in MIT. So this is what this is based off of. Uh, it's a name of a 1967 MIT study, you know, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Project Icarus is a class assignment given by an MIT professor, Paul Sandorf, and he gives it to graduate students in a systems engineering class. The goal of the project was to use rockets that were currently available to deflect or vaporize a meteor named 1566 Icarus. And this was in 1967, mind you. According to an article in in Wired magazine, which I'll link to in our show notes, here's the plan. So they're going to delay NASA's first manned lunar landing by about three years and use six Saturn V rockets that were earmarked for the moon program to launch towards Icarus. One 44,000-pound nuclear warhead with a destructive yield of 100 megatons. Now, at that time, they may not have known this, no such weapon ever existed. You know, remember what I said about Zarbamba? It was 50 megatons. Could have been 100, but it didn't exist. But at least you can argue the students didn't know that, right? So they it was just, classified, possibly. So they wanted to basically tie six launchers together, Saturn Vs, <laughs> and one... At least they would, they would, each of them would carry up one of those, like um, a 100 megaton warhead. Wow, okay. Each of them would do All that. Right, interesting, okay? okay. The missile would be launched from the ground, though, not from space. Uh, there wouldn't be a space orbiting platform. The missile would detonate at a distance of between 50 to 100 feet from Icarus, and the students estimated that a 100-megaton near-surface nuclear blast would excavate a crater of about 1,000 feet wide, and the effect of that explosion would have, uh, you know, push Icarus's course a little bit further away. You know, they didn't know with exact precision, but they figured it would push it further enough away that it would reduce its velocity, uh, make it slower... And kind of lose its or path just defle- on Earth. Uh, deflected it. Deflected a little bit, yeah. Yep. You know, if, if you have enough of a lead time and something's traveling right towards you, if you just push it a little bit to the right or left or up or down in space, there's no up and down and all that, it would make it so that it doesn't hit you. That was the plan. Uh, they estimated that the, the project would cost about $7.5 billion and that it would have a 71% chance of diverting the, the asteroid. Also, a 1.5% chance of fragmenting the asteroid and causing it to even more damage than if it were just to hit on its own. But, well, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Omelets, broken eggs, that sort of thing, yes. Exactly. Uh, so this, this project was done, and because of its, its subject matter, very popular. It made its way throughout the public consciousness. Uh, Time magazine ran a story on the project that was turned eventually into a book. Uh, the movie, though, decides to have Connery's Hercules system uh, so powerful that it completely vaporizes the asteroid instead of just deflecting it. 
Uh, and they also went from six 100 megaton missiles to like 29 100 megaton missiles. They certainly make this pretty big, yep. right? They try to have a, a deep impact on the uh, on the asteroid. So that's all that we have for a meteor. Please, I know you may have already seen these two movies, but we're going to run through them really quickly just so we have our uh, we're all on the same page before we get begin our like movie discussion. Boris, you were the one who drew the short straw to watch Deep Impact. Why don't you uh, summarize Deep Impact for us here? Absolutely, would love to. So uh, this summary um, does not contain the um, character names, just the names of the actors, okay. because I could not be bothered to learn the <laughs> uh, to learn the latter. So and you didn't you know. bother buying the movie. You went to the library and got all the movies. Absolutely, yes, <laughs> that's what I do most of the time too. Um, folks. Please go to your local library and support it. They, it is an invaluable source of information on all matters nuclear and non-nuclear. <laughs> and now with that PSA, let's uh, go onwards to Deep Impact. Um, Deep Impact is a sub-story about uh, how nuclear weapons could not save the world, or at least a large chunk <laughs> of it. A high school wannabe astronomer magically discovers a comet that is heading on a collision course with the Earth. Instead of alerting everyone, the U.S. government covers it up for a few years. Why not? <laughs> while secretly cooperating with the Russians to create an orbited space vessel, the Messiah, with nuclear weapons on board to be sent on a mission to destroy it. I love that. The Messiah. They'll just take the Messiah, you know, the Messiah. Around, yeah, to take it around the pole, like, the, 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 take it out on the waves, you know, So the, the, in the course of action. Yeah. And then put a bunch of nukes on it. Absolutely, yes. Saving by destroying. <laughs> it's, it is a very biblical... Um, uh, it is a very biblical theme, I have to say. Instead of Greek mythology, exactly, here, yeah, they're, they're going the Bible, old, yeah. old Testament, New Testament. Yep. Well, it's definitely the well, the, the Old Testament the, in the New Testament, I presume. Although not really hundred percent sure, I think the Messiah does arrive for at least part of the population. But yeah, you know, right? Uh, a nuclear bomb. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that's that, that. That's in the New New Testament. Tim. <laughs> um, the government is finally forced to disclose the existence of the asteroid and launch the mission to detonate nuclear weapons. The mission fails, breaking the comet into two, and the ship is badly damaged. Although, yeah, well, things go wrong. Though they have no way of communicating with Earth. President Morgan Freeman then institutes martial law, preselects a few million people, by straws, I guess, or lottery, or whatever it was, for bunk beds at a bunker down in Missouri to survive the impact and launches an all-out nuclear strike against the comet. Whole bunch of ICBMs. Indeed. The pride of military-industrial complex fails as well. Boo! Needed more money. Um, uh, the little comet hits the eastern seaboard, destroying everything in its path, except for Elijah Wood and Lily Sobieski's undying love and the baby they were handed from her parents, which was a very weird aspect of the movie. Yeah, we the won't cover that said, too the much. Yeah, the better. Uh, however, the cowboy Robert Duvall leads a last-ditch suicide mission by the Messiah to fly into the large comet and detonate the remaining nuclear weapons on board, thus breaking the comet into many small pieces, which harmlessly, quote-unquote, burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Millions die, but everyone is happy. Except for Boris, who had to watch this movie in great detail. Uh, yeah, this is a, this movie's chock-full of nuke references to the, the Messiah, their team. Uh, they drill to into the comet with... Uh, not like a human drilling, but they have like these things called the moles uh, who dig down not too deep, like 80 feet, something like that. Uh, and they have these kind of small uh, bombs, relatively small bombs relative to 100 megaton bombs. Uh, these are 5,000 kilotons each. 
more than though four times as big as the uh, very powerful B-83 bomb, which is the most powerful bomb currently in the U.S. Uh, nuclear arsenal. And I thought this was kind of interesting because they keep using the phrase 5,000 kilotons instead of just calling it 5 megatons. Well, because, Tim, 5,000 is more than 5. So <laughs> exactly. there you go. So, yeah, mini nukes relative to the 100 megaton warheads in Meteor. What I thought was kind of cool here, too, was they also – it's a real quick passing reference in the movie. Uh, but they use a spaceship, a nuclear-powered spaceship – to move around, that's how they actually get up into space and, and launch all of these things uh, down on the asteroid um, that's coming to Earth. Or I think it's maybe a comet coming to Earth, right? So they, they use different yeah. words. It's called the Orion, uh, which they, they essentially model it off of Orion, which was a nuclear weapon armed missile. Uh, kind of like in Star Trek First Contact, when they take the uh, Titan II missile body, you know, from mm -hmm. way in the past... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they turned that into the Phoenix warp drive, the first ever warp drive system. So this movie kind of takes that idea, um, which is roughly around the same time, 1998. I think First Contact was 94, 96, something like that, right? Uh, I think it was before 98, but maybe by a year or two. I think it was two, before. It was not, yeah. Anyways, Gabe will be yelling at the podcast right now, telling me exactly when it was. Gabe, we can hear you. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to Armageddon. Armageddon. The story of how nuclear weapons save the world. When NASA discovers an asteroid the size of Texas will hit the Earth in 18 days, the world's smartest man comes up with the brilliant three-point plan to, one, land on an asteroid, two, drill an 800-foot hole in the asteroid, three, put a thermonuclear weapon in the asteroid, blow it up. NASA decides it is easier to train oil drillers to do space stuff than it would be to teach astronauts to drill holes. So they call Harry Stamper, played by Bruce Willis, who is the world's best drill man. He takes a break from hitting Greenpeace activists with golf balls to help NASA. I think that's what I love about this movie is we're introduced to our hero hitting golf balls at Greenpeace activists and shooting his daughter's lover, boyfriend, soon-to-be fiancé, with a shotgun, almost killing him multiple times. These are our heroes of the movie. Harry assembles his misfit team of tax-dodging, oil-rigged crew to learn how to survive in space and drill where no human has drilled before. Despite a few hiccups, you know, destruction of the Mir space station, and a bout of space dementia, Harry's team manages to drill, nuke, and escape Dottie, the asteroid. But Harry doesn't want to miss a thing, so he stays behind so he can manually detonate the nuke freeing his daughter to marry the roughneck of her dreams and start their own soup and animal cracker franchise. But um bum That's the movie. Uh, there are lots of nuke references in this film. In the opening narration, within like a few seconds of the movie starting, you see a big asteroid hit the Earth, and they say it's... It hit with the force of 10,000 nuclear weapons. That's an absurdly small number. According to the blog Bad Astronomy, which I recommend checking out, the typical world-ending asteroid moving at 11 kilometers per second, which is the minimum speed that it can travel, you know, over that long of a distance, the impact should release 80 million megatons of energy. That's, you know, Tsar Bomba could have been 100 megatons. That's 800,000 Tsar Bombas, a lot more than the force of 
10,000 nuclear weapons. Get open to find what that means. Do you mean Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapons? Do you mean, you know, more recent modern weapons? It doesn't matter. Tim, it's just, according it's a lot of to numbers. Hollywood, all nuclear weapons are the same. They all work <laughs> the same, and nothing ever changes. Exactly. I think it's kind of fun, though, that as the movie starts and you start to see meteor fragments starting to hit places like Manhattan. Boris, take a drink of your Manhattan. Sip. Uh... The military thinks that these might be an incoming missile attack. It starts to scramble jets, and it thinks that it's about to be – maybe the Russians are attacking us. They open the nuclear football in the movie, but then we learn later on that it's just you know rocks instead of missiles. The military decides that their big plan is to send up 150 nuclear weapons to destroy it, but the smartest man says don't do that. The military decides not to just send up 150 uh, nuclear weapons, which is what they do in Deep Impact and all of that. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie – uh, you have Rockhound, who's played by Steve Buscemi. He's having uh, some space dementia. He gets onto the nuclear weapon and, like, rides it like a cowboy. And he goes, yeah, I'm riding the nuke like that Slim Pickens in that movie. Get off the nuclear warhead. I was doing that guy from that movie, you know, Slim Pickens, where he rides it all the way in, the nuclear warhead. No. I didn't see that one, huh? You know, all that <laughs> stuff. What is funny, I wonder how many actually people who are, are probably Armageddon's target audience have seen Dr. Strangelove. Maybe a good percentage, but mm, I don't know. Uh, anyway. no, no, I, I don't know that the two audiences really overlap. Well, I, I appreciate it. Then, like, kind of like this scene here, too, Rockhound immediately opens up the first space branch of Global Zero, yelling, mm. no nukes, no nukes, no nukes. No nukes! No nukes! No nukes! Yep, good stuff. Yeah, um, indeed. All right, so we've talked about Meteor. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Deep Impact. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Let's compare and contrast. Let's break this down. Let's do what no one else has probably ever done before, which is really get super critical about these three movies. This is our Asteroids versus Nuke discussion. The first thing I want to kind of mention here is the tale of the tape. Which meteor has the best name? In in the movie Meteor, it's a five-mile-wide fragment of Orpheus, the mm-hmm. asteroid. Deep Impact, it's a seven-mile-wide comet called Wolf Biederman. And I guess when they break into two, one is oh, called Wolf and one is called Biederman. And in Armageddon, it's an asteroid the size of Texas named Dottie. Uh, who is the wife of the person who discovers it because he says she'll cause the same amount of destruction that on Earth that the wife has done in his life. What do you like best, Boris? Do you like Orpheus? Do you like Wolf Biederman? Do you like Dottie? Uh, I mean, I just like uh, Orpheus for the uh, Greek uh, mythological allusions there. However, I think in real life, the asteroid would, prob- would probably be named Wolf Biederman mm. because it would probably be named after the people who discover it just like in uh, deep impact right it, it would suck to have the earth destroyed by asteroid dotty but it most likely would be the name of whoever yep. whoever discovered it whoever wants that uh you know part of history for as long as history will exist so then also let's compare between the movies the nuke deployment strategy how are we going to use nuclear weapons against the asteroid in the movie meteor it's to send 29 missiles i still can't get over this 29 missiles, 2,900 megatons of nuclear <laughs> yield to hit the asteroid all at once and hope that it vaporizes this five-mile-wide asteroid. In Armageddon, you get the world's best drill team 
drill an 800 foot deep hole and you put one nuclear weapon i love how they don't put more just the one just one yeah just the one put that inside and hope that it breaks into two pieces the whole asteroid yep. and they'll just drift away from hitting earth and then we also find out in the movie there's this other thing called the secondary protocol which is if they're not able to drill in time before it reaches the point of no return I forget what they call that line but like the horizon a, the, i think or something like that something like that like if they get past that point it's no nuke or anything's going to be able to split it right into into two in time. or they, even if it is then they, they'll both hit there double whatever yeah. yeah double whammy the air force overrides on the order of the president overrides the plan and tries to remote detonate the nuke i guess just on the surface uh, I thought that was kind of funny because they, it's a really complicated system that they have there. It's like a two-man rule. You know, right. two people needing to turn keys. There's all kinds of Air Force people running in. Again, I don't know why the Air Force would be in charge of this at this particular point. But the Air Force is coming through and turning keys and all this complicated system for what probably is like a, a weapon that they created for this exact purpose. Or have at least designed it. So I don't know why it has all these different things. But maybe it's to prevent a, a, a rogue general from just deciding, I'm going to turn the key and blow it up. But it's a quite, a, quite, a, quite a complicated system oh, It also system here. drives up tension, and uh, obviously yeah. the force is all about tension in movies. So. Exactly. Okay. And then in Deep Impact, you have the U.S. and the Russians uh, creating a nuclear-powered spacecraft. Changes the comet's path using the explosive force of eight nuclear weapons of five megaton yield each. Uh, these are drilled very slightly under the surface. Uh, they don't need their world's best real team. I think that's kind of a little snub yep. to, to Armageddon. They just need robots to do the job. The robots took Bruce Willis was Bruce not Willis available jobs. for two jobs. <laughs> exactly. He was <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was taken up with Armageddon. He was so, busy. Yeah. Uh, and then the secondary plan was to use a bunch of nuclear ICBMs, uh, ICBMs yeah. from Earth and all that stuff. Um, actually, the nerd question, team. Yeah. Uh, are ICBMs actually able to break – uh, uh, Earth's, uh, not uh, Earth's as orbit. Not as designed. Okay, interesting. Uh, you, know, th you probably could make some some modifications mm -hmm. and things, but they are they do have a trajectory. They, it's kind of a lot like lobbing something in a particular path, because once it stops burning the rocket, right. usually it'll captured by be by the Earth's gravity and uh, right. Well, if you see in some movies, you'll see a missile coming from the ground from a, from a silo. And one missile just travels all the way to its target. May not even go into space in a lot of these films. It just kind of travels in one path, and then what hits the ground is the whole missile itself. <laughs> well, that's not how this works. An ICBM will get launched into space. These are modern weapons here. They break. You know, the primary comes off. The secondary comes off. And then just the warhead in a few pieces will go into orbit. And those will separate even. Sometimes they'll put right. decoys Nears, out yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. Yep. And you just get the re-entry vehicle, which looks a lot like a ice cream cone with no ice cream. And that ice cream cone will then be the thing that hits essentially just a – At a very high rate and just very, drop very and fast. drop and – That was not really the thing you can use to just travel straight into space and keep going. But the movie sometimes, at least uh, Meteor, claims that its, its system is already in space – in Deep Impact, I don't know what those ICBMs do. Who knows? They're specially designed Messiah ICBMs. So there you go. Right. Something. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, so that's the plan. So there's – some of them are, you know, we're going to just nuke from space. The other one is we're going to drill mm. a hole uh, or remote detonate. Right. The other one is we're going to – Nuke from Earth. Nuke from Earth or the other one. So they, right. they're trying everything they possibly can. It kind of covers the full – 
the full gamut here. Um, this does reflect, and I'll explain this in a second, the different opinions that experts have on, on what's the best way to go about doing this. Uh, and then there's also, in all of the movies, some pretty strong international collaboration between the U.S. and Russia. In, in Armageddon, they use the Mir space station. They never call it the Mir space station. Even the Russian on the Russian space station calls it the Russian space station and not like Mir space station. Because most of the audience would not get the reference. And Well, when, yeah. did, when did that enter the Earth's atmosphere and burn up? Mir? I think in, two, in early something? 2000s. I believe. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, there's a lot of things in this movie that don't exist anymore. Yep. In Armageddon anyway. So it's like that. There's a couple different references to things that existed in the 90s but no longer exist today. Um, Payphones. Yeah. Exactly. In all of these movies, uh, Meteor, obviously, it's a big component of it is, is the international collaboration. The, the asteroid is the thing threatening Earth, but the real villain is the Cold War conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet sure. Union, right? Uh, and then in Deep Impact, there's a lot of collaboration on the actual system itself. Were there any Russians on the Messiah that was being commanded by Robert Duvall? Do you remember? Uh, one of the uh, one of the astronauts or cosmonauts yeah. was Russian, but I believe he meets. Uh, or no, I think he he comes. Uh, I think he's the one of the people who survives to the very end, if I'm okay. not mistaken. Well, they all. All the Russians in the movies, I think, all have like a little bit of a quirky nature to them. They're never Absolutely. just like this, the straight face, serious. Let's get this job done. Like one of them is a little bit of a weirdo uh, in in Meteor, in Armageddon. He's a kind of a crazy. I've been in space by myself. Uh, I'm gonna a talk crazier about version Cowboys. of Steve Buscemi. Right, exactly. He's the Steve Buscemi equivalent. Uh, and then I think in Deep Impact too, he's he's not definitely a normal guy right um, he so, makes corny jokes and such and yeah right. not great so there's international collaboration but we can't just let them off the hook we the unfortunately still like yeah unfortunately weird. a real live russian bear was not available for any of the <laughs> movies so the uh so the uh directors chose to omit that Ex particular it, there we go aspect and then we let's talk about the results because all of these movies have different impacts once you use the nukes there's a different impact uh the movie meteor totally vaporizes the asteroid everyone is saved uh there's a few damage points here and there but really other than like manhattan having a part of it hit right most of everything else is fine like there's an avalanche sure people die yeah, in the yeah. avalanche that sucks but it's not like hong kong gets it but oh the, the, yeah i forgot about hong kong that's but kind of that's okay now at that point in time no one cared about hong kong so uh i mean but yeah overall it's uh, does not seem not too like bad yeah uh it deep impact from what we know Deep impact. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. So the first nuke strike breaks the comet into two pieces. Uh, one, which is called Wolf, is six miles wide. And then Biederman, which is 1.5 miles wide. They're both headed towards Earth. Uh, the second round of ICBMs do nothing. But the Biederman, the 1.5 mile smaller piece, ends up hitting the Earth and causes like a really big problem. Right. Like tidal waves... Everything you would imagine needing in a disaster yep. movie hits it, the east coast of the U.S. So yeah. I think New whatever. York's gone. Yeah, New York, Philadelphia's gone. Whatever, Washington's gone. Yeah, or, yeah, uh, a big deal. Um, but then the Messiah ship with more nukes on board, synchronized to go off at the exact same time, does a suicide mission against the larger piece and breaks it into smaller ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I was certainly impressed by the fact that they could synchronize nuclear weapons. That's really difficult to do because you imagine when one goes off. It's it's less than milliseconds, nanoseconds, 
the system happens and then goes button push everything's gone. Yeah, right. That's if you don't time that exactly right, one nuke, the first one that goes off, destroys the other ones before they have a chance of becoming super critical. It's a big problem as for nuclear targeters when you're trying to say, let's put two nuclear warheads on this target because it's a big target, it's a hardened target. You have to make sure that one of them hits, the explosion takes place, but then the heat and everything moves away. It needs to so dissipate they, before for the, the next one, one to come yep. in. So the idea that they synchronize all of these things is a lot harder to do. And it also, it's not like if you put two five megaton bombs right next to each other that it creates a 10 megaton explosion there's efficiencies lost there because things are being pushed away instead of like the full impact of a ground zero evaporating out all of that stuff there's some efficiencies lost probably still would be a big deal but anyways in the armageddon the nukes drill into the asteroid split into two pieces that completely misses earth it's a, it's a great, awesome thing. Well, I, I think a few uh, shards hit uh, beforehand. Beforehand. Hit, uh, yeah. So I think New obviously New York gets it. Uh, Paris gets it. Some, I forget what else is going on, but you know. Various other places. Yeah. I will say here an honorable mention for a movie we didn't discuss because it's, it's kind of too crazy. It's from 1958. It's an Italian movie called The Day the Sky Exploded. Uh, nuclear technology is both the villain and the savior of the movie. An atomic rocket headed towards the moon is sent off course from, you know, the moon and ends up hitting the asteroid belt, explodes, sends asteroid pieces back to Earth. And the solution to this problem is for every country that has nuclear missiles to fire them all at the exact same time at the asteroid and then that it works. All right. So that's that's the tale of the tape, the discussions of how everything works out. Uh Let's kind of go into the real-life debate of whether or not to use nukes versus asteroids. There are competing plans that people have introduced about using nukes versus these space rocks. There, you can either do a direct hit, which is what they do in Meteor, uh, and then what they end up trying to do in Deep Impact, uh, or you do a surface detonation, is which was the secondary protocol. Right. That's certainly something that people try to think about. Yep. Yep, an Armageddon. Uh, you can do a standoff at a certain distance. Which is what Project Icarus was, which is not what ended up being happening in our in the movie Meteor, um, but that's a standoff type approach. And that idea is that you you detonate it, and then it causes enough heat on one side or pushes it away. Uh, you don't actually have to hit it directly. You don't have the missile drill into the Earth or anything, drill into the a, the a, asteroid or anything, or you can do a deeply buried nuke. Probably not a drill team, but some sort of maybe kinetic projectile. That would hit the meteor, drill into it, bury it like an earth-penetrating weapon, but a some sort of thing. Either it would have the nuke in it, or something that would hit first, create a hole, and then the missile with the nuke follows right behind it, hmm. goes into like a crater okay. or so something like that. Send the bunker buster down, and then send the, the nuclear weapon. Okay. Exactly. Right. Uh, I mean, that happened fairly recently. In the last 10 years, NASA launched a projectile, kinetic projectile at the moon at a place that thought it would have water and it hit the ground caused a bunch of dirt to fly up into the not the air but it flew up right and then the another secondary uh scientific measuring device came through and before it hit it col collected information and then sent it back to earth interesting that's cool um here are the problems with the the armageddon movie plan in particular uh even michael bay and has admitted uh, in, an, in an interview with entertainment weekly 
that the the central premise that NASA could quote unquote actually do something in a situation like this was unrealistic. So I'm, I'm glad even he admitted it, but it's still very entertaining. Way to go, uh, Michael Bay, for yeah. being the truth teller, I guess. Transformers, though, completely scientifically accurate. Absolutely. Uh, no atmosphere in space. Let's generally agree, Boris. There's no atmosphere in space. I'd say it's fake news, Tim, fake but news. Uh, we, we might need to have a, an actual se- uh, an actual ruling on that. But <laughs> please go let, ahead. Let's pretend there's no atmosphere in space, right? There's no air. Well, air is one of the things you need to create a shockwave. Because what a shockwave is, is heated air expanding out from the source of the heat. If there's no atmosphere, there's no shockwave. In most of these movies, you see shockwaves pushing the asteroid away, detonating things, pushing it to the side. That's not what would end up happening. Now, what ends up happening is in a nuclear explosion in space, it releases heat and mostly in the form of radiation. Now, what the idea that most people have is, is that if you have heat and radiation, it can melt part of the surface of an asteroid, you know, in line mm-hmm. of sight of the detonation. Right. That means that the part of the vaporized part of the asteroid surface uh, would, because of the law of thermodynamics, when part, you know, one force in one direction has an equal but opposite reaction, would cause uh, ever so slightly the asteroid to move in the opposite direction of where the vaporized piece is mm-hmm. melting off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be enough to deflect it away, to encourage it to move <laughs> in a different direction. Four graduate students at the University of, of Leicester studying physics said it would take one billion Tsar Bombas to release enough energy to split an asteroid, the, the asteroid in Armageddon, in this path, in this particular way, to cause it to move far enough apart to miss Earth. Because there's no there's no shockwave. It's not some like visions that can be created. I guess the movie said that maybe there was like gas pockets that it was releasing. Either way, it's not enough to actually split and separate to two pieces because there isn't a shockwave. Right. It's uh, yeah, it, uh, just completely unrealistic. So one billion Tsar bombas. Yep. That's. That's, That's a, a lot. big number. It's quite a That's bit. That's a big number. Uh, Dr. Ed Liu, the president of the B612 Foundation, who studies asteroids and all of those kind of things, uh, he, he suggested that a nuclear detonation near the surface of an asteroid, what they end up doing in Armageddon, or at least in Deep Impact, would more likely turn a speeding bullet into a shotgun blast, which mm-hmm. our friend Bill Nye, the science guy, said would be a very bad idea because, quote, momentum is conserved if you blow it up, then the whole giant spray of rocks is coming at the Earth instead of one. And so, I mean, the, the idea would be that those rocks would be small enough to uh, actually get uh, even smaller by entering the, the Earth's atmosphere. Like a part of it would uh, yeah. would melt or would be sheared off and that the impact would be minimized. But uh, still, that's uh, a lot, some, yeah, that, that's a lot to hope for. That's a lot to hope for. Exactly. But you know what? Some people are hopeful. Some people are just... Forever optimists. And those that are believe that using nukes against asteroids are a great idea. You know, like high school Tim, right? Absolutely. When I was bright-eyed and and just thought the world was great and we should protect it with just one or two nukes. For larger objects and shorter response times, these people will argue that a nuclear explosion is your best bang for the buck because of the huge amount of energy that it can release. It is the only option. And this is what Bong Wee who is a professor and director at Iowa State University's Asteroid Deflection Research Center. 
So wow, an expert. Uh, yeah, and it's a, there's an entire research center for asteroid deflection. Exactly. Uh, Bob Weaver of Los Alamos National Laboratory said, quote, that it would be blown to smithereens, a 1,600-feet-long asteroid used in one of their studies, assuming that the asteroid is 25% porous and hit with a 500-kiloton nuclear blast. The asteroid will be blown to small, tiny, harmless pieces that would be uh, spread outwards too quickly to be drawn back together. Because this is something that people have discovered about asteroids, is they're not one solid piece of iron or iron ligament right. or something they call right. it in the movie uh, Armageddon. Um, it's not just one piece. Most of these are like closely held together, small pebbles. They're porous. They're like a sponge. Sure. Or like a sandstone or something along those lines. Uh, so the idea is that you don't need as much energy from a nuclear weapon to actually deflect it or break it into small pieces because these things are different than what we right. initially planned. We'll learn more about asteroids the more times we study them, you know, the more occasional nukes we showed up to shoot at them as a test to Absolutely. figure it out. Uh, Weaver said that these calculations would show that if an object, a very porous one, a nuclear explosion would probably mitigate a potentially hazardous object. So these are the people that, that think nukes should be used against asteroids. But there are other ideas that people have come up with uh, to use other kinds of technology to divert or deflect or destroy asteroids that aren't nukes. Because uh, one person in particular, Jay Malouche, who is a professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Studies at Purdue, he thought that, uh, you know, asteroid defense, quote-unquote, was probably just another excuse for keeping the nuclear arsenal large and all together. Uh, he thought that there were other non-nuclear ways of defending the Earth. Things like a gravity tractor, which is, they kind of joke about this in Armageddon when they have the, the nerdy scientists at NASA coming up with different ideas. You know, what the gravity tractor would do is it would use a thrusters and, the gra and a gravitational tugboat. It would attach itself to the asteroid and would just slowly kind of pull it in a different direction. Not immediately, but, you know, slowly over right. time. Imagine you're walking down a, like a long street with your friend and you're kind of like slowly edging them further and further into that mud pile that they're going to fall into later. You know, you slowly a, move it over and then that's how it works. Or, or a sewer hole or whatever is available. Yeah. Right, cesspool, any of those Cess things. Yep. Whatever way you exactly. want to trick your friends. Uh, and that's kind of the idea is that you would change the asteroid's course that way. There's also something called an impactor, which is you would crash it at high speeds into the asteroid for basically the same idea, kind of nudge it in another direction. Um, NASA had a 2005 mission called, look, funny enough, Deep Impact, in which a 820-pound battering ram smashed into the asteroid Temple 1. The mission was deemed a success as the comet's course was slightly changed after the, the ram achieved impact. Hooray! Right? Success! Unfortunately, it also put it on the path of hitting Earth, and that'll happen right about... I'm just kidding. We're all good. Uh, but yeah, deep impact. Maybe the person who created that thought that was a funny reference to the movie. Uh, but these are these are all the, the catalog of nuke movies that we have here. Yep. Uh, Boris, we're, talking, if, we're talking about American uh, national heritage people. Exactly. All right, so I've talked a lot here, Boris. What do you think about these different plans here? As, as someone who has had to watch these movies, someone who's, I'm pretty sure, is a citizen of the planet Earth, what do you think about how nukes would be used? Are they something that we should look at? Should we look at other things? You know, what, what is your general now educated opinion since you've gone through this whole process? Heard me ramble. 
Um, I think that if an uh, if an extraterrestrial object was headed for Earth, we would be pretty screwed, mm -hmm. Tim, both in nuclear and in non-nuclear ways. So um, I would uh, j I would just say that uh, whatever plans that NASA or uh, uh, or the, the military or uh, Hollywood would come up with would probably not work as advertised. Mm. Um, you think we're all just going to have to end up being in bunkers and yeah. hope that you're, you win the lottery, that your genes will be surviving into the future, living in a bunker? That's assuming that the uh, that there is a lottery and that there are bunkers, <laughs> but yes. And yeah. in fact, I will touch upon that a little bit la later on okay. in the show in the uh, stuff to recommend. E oh, excellent. Okay. Well, um, you know, it's definitely one of those things, if this were to happen in real life, in the movies, all of these films, they learn about the asteroid and then they have days to come up with a solution. It's a lot like the t ticking clock argument for torture is if, if there's a ticking nuclear bomb somewhere and you have a terrorist who knows where the bomb is, you do anything you can to get the information exactly. from yep. them. That scenario, as popular as it is on 24, the you know, the television program. The one's program, popular. The one's popular. Uh, very popular with me back in the day. Um, that scenario is not what usually happens. Very rarely, probably never. Most of the time, torture would end up causing someone to say whatever you wanted them to say, causes incredible, you know, psychological and physical harm, violates treaties, violates morals. Those are all the Makes things. Makes you a much worse human being. Yes, all of those awful things. In the movies, these three that we chose to watch here, the scenario is always that you have a few days, so let's use what we have available. Nukes. That's what we have. Yep. That's the most powerful thing we've got. Yep. What we'll probably have in real life is we would notice an asteroid coming towards Earth months, maybe even years in advance. So we would maybe be able to try out a variety of these decisions. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening, I think someone makes this argument pretty good in the research that I saw here, which is once you use a nuke against an asteroid, if it breaks it into smaller pieces, they will hit Earth. And you also no longer have any other option. You can't have a tugboat if your boat, your tug, your your towing is in fifty pieces, right? And all of them are heading towards right. the harbor and all that stuff at an incredible amount of speed and all of that. Uh, if you have a nuke and it doesn't work, but it causes like radi radiation damage on the asteroid, then you have to be careful about it putting Bruce Willis onto that asteroid later on because it's radioactive. And especially Ben Affleck. And especially, I think yeah. Ben Affleck's fine. He's, he's oh, radioactive okay. proof and all okay. that stuff. Uh, so you have all these different scenarios that you do. So maybe you try a couple different things at first. Um, one of the things that's really important about this is that all of these movies kind of have automatic cooperation between the U.S. and the Russians and everything. But why nowadays... Would we just assume that China, the United States, Europe, Russia would all say that, yeah, I think the other countries have a pretty good idea of how to do this. There's no reason why China wouldn't be trying to do its own thing. Mm -hmm. Russia would be doing its own thing and the U.S. would do, be doing its own thing or Europe, you know? Yep. Like, I just think that that's something that's important and it's interesting that the movies a little bit just – some of them – I mean, obviously, Meteor, its major plot right. is – to convince countries that we're all yep. under the same threat. I don't really think Meteor does a great job of that. Mm -hmm. Like why they make that decision all of a sudden to work together as opposed to not working together. I mean, it seems obvious to us, right? There's an asteroid coming. You do what you need Everyone, to do. Yep. Um, 
but anyways, the, that's clearly in a critical, important component of this. And that's why you have all these centers like at Iowa State University that are trying to come up with ideas now. And then that way you can work together with colleagues around the world so that if this were to happen, you'd already have networks created, connections, ideas, all of those things. So you wouldn't be starting from scratch and not have to come up with, well, we've got nukes, let's use them. Yep, exactly. I mean, the, 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 as you pointed out, nukes are uh, really the option of last resort. The, because if nukes will not, uh, I mean, if nukes will not succeed, you basically close up all other options to, right. set to success, and uh, that that's uh, that I think is what people, uh, uh, what a lot of the people do not fully grasp or or comprehend. Nukes are definitely the last resort. You know, they're the the the, the biggest option that we have, and it closes off all their other options. Uh, but you still have to figure out, right? You have to we have to weigh your options. You have to rate them. Hey. Let's rate the movies. Uh, we rate our movies here on a consistent one through five rating. You know, one being the worst, one five being great, something you'd recommend to somebody. Uh, so we have a consistent rating. But because we're super critical about the plots, I'm also super critical about my rating system. I want to tailor it to the film that we're talking about. I've crunched the numbers here, Boris. One out of five Texases. Texasi? Tex Texases? We all know that apparently Texas is a universally understood unit of measurement. Indeed it right? is. That's what Armageddon yep. teaches us. Yep. Uh, it is not advised to mess with one Texas, but if you've got five Texas, it would be severely detrimental to your physical and mental well-being to mess with five Texas. Texas. How many Texases would you give this? Uh, you can either give them to each of the movies or overall, however you want to do it. Um, I'm going to do each movie. Uh, I'd give the uh, overall experience uh, of uh, all three movies really a one out of five Texases. Ouch. Sex aside. Uh, because, I mean, l l let's be honest, none of those uh, movies were uh, created really with an eye towards uh, um, educating the populace at large. Mm. And uh, the the other aspects of the uh, of those movies, uh, other than per perhaps uh, special uh, visual effects in Armageddon, were really all that much to write home mm -hmm. about either. Okay, well I'm going to be a little bit more kind. I'm going to give Meteor a two to Whoa, Texas. Okay. Armageddon two point five, and Deep Impact a three. And here, Sam, you surprise me. And here's why. I think the Deep Impact I really like. Not most of the scenes on the spacecraft with Robert Duvall. I, I forgot how like terrible those are. They're not very entertaining. He definitely he phoned it in. But I like all of the Morgan Freeman scenes. All of the scenes where like our plan didn't work. What are we going to do? Let's come up with essentially an option to survive this. And you start to see that kind of like consequences of people's actions happening. Mm -hmm. I really like that angle to it quite a bit. Uh, I think Armageddon gets a 2.5 because even though it's people make fun of it and all that stuff, it's still a very entertaining movie. When I said that I was going to watch one of these films uh, for the podcast, Jennifer, my wife, said, can I watch Armageddon with you? I love Armageddon. It turns out it was because she really likes Ben Affleck. But she also was entertained by the movie and said, I remember this movie being good. I still like it. Tim, so you it, are it's, correct it's in that regard. It is Armageddon is not Pearl Harbor. <laughs> exactly. And Meteor, I recommend everyone to watch Meteor, but I'm still never going to give it more than a two. Uh, it's it's really 
corny and bad in certain places. It's got some really bad interactions between male and female characters in the movie. But it's still kind of interesting to see all of the space scenes and how weird it is to see a missiles very slowly turned around towards the asteroid. But then the music you're watching is like when Rudy gets his first tackle in the movie Rudy. Those scenes are certainly entertaining and fun. And if you can get on YouTube and they're still there, I'd yep. recommend seeing it. Definitely um, say I see it or at least see a few minutes of it and remember that <laughs> that go. movie actually bankrupted its uh, production yeah. company, AIP. And um, so um, I guess it's, uh, yeah. It couldn't avoid the, the onslaught that it was, this movie, Meteor. It couldn't avoid it. It got hit, and it was that an extinction-level yeah. event. It was an extinction-level event. A bankruptcy-level level event. event. Yeah. <laughs> For the production company, indeed. Well, let's talk about some things that didn't ruin the world uh, or production companies. Let's talk about recommendations that we have. Uh, I have three things to recommend. These are things that if you liked our discussions, maybe certain aspects to it, maybe you liked one of the movies and you want to learn more things, these are things that we recommend. Boris, why don't you start us off? I've got three things, uh, two movies and a book. Sure. What do you got? Um, so I got, uh, I guess, a web page, if you can call it, and a book. <laughs> uh, so the first, uh, what really got me interested was that, uh, I mean, what actually does happen when an asteroid or some sort of an extraterrestrial object actually hits the Earth? Obviously, a lot of energy is released uh, on the scale of uh, Ten, like billions. About, about 10,000 nuclear weapons or more? Uh, way more. <laughs> so um, yeah, here's, uh, here are some things that I found out in my research. So obviously, the, um, big, uh, the biggest such event that we know of uh, um, uh, that, that happened um, about, I'd say, what's, I think, 70 million years ago or so. Mm -hmm. That was the impact of the um, uh, asteroid that hit in what is now the Yucatan Peninsula called uh, and formed the Chicxulub, uh, I think I pronounced it correctly, crater. Um, and uh, scientists currently estimate that the, uh, their best estimate is that the uh, size of that um, object was six to nine miles. Okay. So, I mean, we're talking, I think it was, uh, uh, I think it's deep, uh, is it deep impact sized? I think it's a deep sure. impact sized. But how many, how many Texas is that? Texas I. Less than, a, uh, less than a Texas? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it uh, also destroyed the whole portion many, of Texas. How many uh, Delawares are there? <laughs> they should have used Delawares. That would have made it sound more impressive. Mr. President, it's 800 Delawares coming right at us. <laughs> oh, maybe maybe they should switch to, like, Vatican cities or Monaco's <laughs> just to make it sound so, even So what better. happens when this six-mile yeah. asteroid hit? Yeah, uh, so um, the best estimates, once again, because that happened a long time ago, is that uh, the amount of energy released was 10 to the 23rd power of joules. That's a lot. And that is, uh, drum roll, please, um, 10 billion Hiroshima bombs. Uh, it created a crater 93 miles in diameter, half of which is still visible uh, mm. today, uh, half of which is now has now been uh, subsumed by the uh, Gulf of Mexico, so mm -hmm. it's underwater, but... Uh, I think on uh, hydrographic uh, data, is, it's still visible. You, I mean, it, if you look at it from, you know, Boris, from, uh, Boris has many globes in his apartment, I've learned this. Multiple uh, globes. Multiple globes. You can look at the globe My and actually globe see. Globe man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of his globes, if you open it up and put a nuke inside, or if you open it up, you can see there's some 
some whiskey on the inside. I appreciate indeed. that. Uh, yep, and uh, it is good whiskey indeed. All right. So, what website is this that you? Yep. You uh, so uh, that is the lovely uh, source of information, Wikipedia. Uh, okay. So, um, uh, but it, it is uh, interesting that the um, uh, in that the entry for Chicksoup does contain a whole lot of references to. Uh, um, to uh, other uh, sites okay. and other sources of information, and it's, uh, I mean, uh, just interesting to find out exactly. I mean, you're talking about 10 billion uh, nuclear explosions that that this thing, uh, the equivalent of 10 billion nuclear explosions that this thing caused. That's way more than the humankind has been able or will be able to create in the uh, uh, in the near future. So exactly. Um, we'll, we'll link to that article on Wikipedia. Yep, exactly. And then the second, yep, I do have a book, um, and that uh, book uh, touches up on the um, uh, on an asteroid, or at least a meteorite event that uh, happened uh, in the last century, the so-called Tunguska uh, uh, meteor, which hit in um, a faraway corner of Siberia uh, in 1907, mm. I, I believe. Uh, and um, there, uh, to, to date, there have been like they have not been able to find out if there were any fatalities from it because mm -hmm. it hit in a very remote area, and uh, the people who may have been killed, like we just don't know about them. Uh, but um, the uh, the aftermath, the, there are some pictures also on the internet and in the book that I'm about to recommend, is um, such that like uh, I think several miles worth of forest and dense forest just got words was fell down because of the hmm. uh, both the the sonic uh, the sonic boom that the company did as well as the um uh, as well as the impact of the okay. of the meteorite and the, the the best guess is that the meteorite actually disintegrated before hitting uh, the ground but it still caused an immense amount of damage this sounds interesting what is this book called uh the book is called uh, the tunguska mystery and it is uh it has been uh, published in 2009 uh, by a russian uh astronomer so um i'll uh, i'll uh, get you that uh, that information so you can look it up i think i see here that it's on amazon so it i is will link to that good all right so i've got three things here uh one i've recommended before but i think it's really cool to read uh, it's called space weapons earth wars it's a rand study uh, that i mentioned a little bit earlier it was prepared for the U.S. Air Force in 2002 from Bob Preston, Dana Johnson, Sean Edwards, Michael Miller, and Kelvin Shippaugh. It discusses the pros and cons of space platform weapons, not just the ones that we kind of discussed in the movie, but a variety of different kinetic, non-nuclear, nuclear, all kinds of different systems. So if you want to learn more about this, check out that report. Uh, it's available online for free. The second thing is a movie called Force Majeure. Uh, it's a 2014 movie. I love this film. You can get it on Netflix, I'm pretty sure, last time I checked. Uh, it's a really interesting story about a family that is torn apart uh, because of their different reactions to what they thought was going to be an avalanche that was going to kill all of them. They're sitting after they went skiing, they're having lunch, and they think an, an avalanche is about to destroy everything. The mother protects the two children that they had, the husband runs away, just leaves, leaves the family, and then the rest of the movie is about how they deal with this newfound reality of how their uh, family dynamics are going to have to change. Uh, so I think it's very distinct 
it's different than the movies we watched, which are different people, one with avalanches uh, in terms of meteor, but also how different people react to these kind of life-ending situations and how they respond. The last one I'll recommend, kind of, a 1993 movie called Meteor Man. It's a comedy directed by and starring Robert Townsend. Wow. He's, he's a mild-mannered teacher who's bullied by gangs in a big city until he gains superpowers from a radioactive meteor fragment that gives him the following powers. These are just some of them, but not all of them. The ability to fly, laser vision, superhuman strength, invulnerability, <laughs> and my personal favorite, the ability to absorb the information of any book if he just touches it. That's like temporary, so, but he's able to learn like Kung Fu if he touches a book on Kung Fu for a little while. So basically it's the Justice League in one person. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so this movie's great. It stars a lot of really uh, famous and very funny comic actors at the time. Uh, it's it's not great, but it's I remember as a kid, this was the funniest movie in the world to me. Um, he can also talk with dogs, too. That's another one of his superpowers. Right. Uh, this movie won a Saturn Award nomination for Best Science Fiction Film, but lost ultimately to Jurassic Park. This movie is kind of fun and quirky. You can find it online in a lot of places. Uh, I would recommend checking it out. Meteor Man. Mm -hmm. Boris, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for letting me ruin our wonderful weekend, my, my vacation, uh, you hosting us at your house. I ruined all of those things by making you watch and talk about these movies. But you're a good trooper. I appreciate your friendship. And thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, or you want to tell us what we got wrong in this one, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter, at nuclearpodcast, and email the old-fashioned way, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the program, hey, go on it uh, on iTunes or Google Play Music, wherever you listen. Give us a bunch of stars, the most you can do. Leave a review. Tell us what we should be covering in the future, what you thought about meteors and asteroids and nukes and whether or not that possible combination will work out. Let us know how you think about it, uh, and then that will be appreciated by us. Help us grow the show, all that good stuff. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Boris. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.